Hello and welcome to The Curious Medic, exploring the spectrum of lives doctors lead and the tips, tricks and lessons from their experiences applicable to our own lives. Today, we're talking to the 16th Editor-in-Chief of the British Medical Journal, Dr Fiona Godley. The BMJ is one of the most influential medical journals globally, with an impact factor of more than 30 at the time of recording. And Fiona is the first woman to have held this role. She is an honorary professor at the Netherlands School for Primary Care Research and also sits on the executive committees of the Climate and Health Council and the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change. Fiona welcomed us to the lovely offices of the BMJ for this recording and we got a sneak peek at how this world-famous journal is run. I continue to be amazed at just how approachable the impressive guests we have on this podcast have been. In this interview, recorded in spring 2019, we discuss, amongst other things, the staff welfare situation in the NHS, the importance and challenges of editorial independence, and the role of doctors in the climate emergency. So, without any further ado, Dr. Fiona Godley. Fiona, lovely to have you here. Um, thanks for coming on the show. I wanted to start off just by talking to you a little bit about the BMJ itself. To begin with, what does it actually mean to run a journal? Because perhaps some people listening aren't too familiar with what that is. And it's fair to say when I um, qualified as a doctor all through my medical training, I didn't think this, I didn't know this job existed really. I used to look at the BMJ for the job section, uh, as a lot of people still do. And um, so what it means to run a journal is to be um, aware of a, a broad readership of clinicians, of academics, of health policy experts, and of educators, and and really try to reach out to them and to be to, to help to nurture a community of intelligent, thoughtful people who need to gain knowledge or share knowledge to improve the kind of work that they do. Um, so we have a team of about I would say forty people who are a mixture of medical doctors who have become trained editors. We have professional journalists, we have uh, web editors, we have multimedia editors, and we have administrative staff and publishing staff and marketing staff and sales staff. So it's, it's, a, it's a big operation within an even bigger operation uh, of the publishing group as a whole. Um, and really my job is to, um, I think, free people up to be creative and which I'm very lucky in the team that I have, a fantastically expert, courageous um, energetic, diligent team, and I think my job is to is to set the set the um, environment within which that team can do the very best job that they can do. Uh, we work very hard, but it's great fun, and um, our real aim is to try to make sure that the journal is a good read, is accessible to a wide audience, and it tackles the important issues in healthcare, of which there are so many. Uh, and it doesn't just uh, confirm the status quo, but it actually questions the status quo in a way that is credible and, and can do, do, a, do a good job of, of improving the health and healthcare of people around the world. So I think you described yourself there that to begin with, this wasn't something you expected to be doing. Um, how did you end up being where you are today? Uh, was, it, was there ever a plan to be here or has it all just fallen into place? Certainly no no plan originally. Um, I wanted to be a doctor from a very young age. My father's a doctor and all my siblings older than me are doctors. But I always claim that I was the first of my family, of my, my group of siblings, to say I wanted to be a doctor at about the age of seven. Um, and I've always loved medicine and, and never expected to leave it. And it was a, a year's uh, sabbatical, if you like, or a year's um, editorial registrarship that I took on just after um, I'd got my membership at the Royal College of Physicians and I was a registrar in general medicine at the Whittington in, in, in London, which I loved. It's a, it's a great job to be a, a general medical registrar in a really good hospital. Um, you know, you're really in the thick of it and you, you're, you've got your team of juniors, you've got good consultants supporting you. So I wouldn't have chosen to to stop doing medicine um, as an active choice, but I, I was also interested in writing and, and someone noticed... Uh, on my behalf this job advertised and I applied for it to spend a year at the BMJ as a as a registrar editorial registrar um, and I was the second person to take on that annual job 
and um, quite a few of us who've subsequently done that job have stayed. So one of my deputies, um, one of my previous deputies, several people around the publishing group have come into this work through that one-year job. So after I'd done a year, they asked me to stay on another year, and I asked my rotation if they could hold it open for me, which they did. So I, I was always intending to go back. Um, but the work at the BMJ is very fascinating, and I, I found myself drawn into it. You're exposed at a, at a relatively junior um, stage in my my career to a wide range of issues, a wide range of fascinating people, and I loved the writing and I loved the evaluation of other people's work and the editing and the conferences and a whole host of stuff that is the mix of an editor's job. So um, it became, you know, eventually it wasn't really a decision. I, I sort of found myself staying here and I've been on and off at the BMJ ever since I've done a few other things but um, I like to think that the BMJ is part of medicine we you know maybe kidding myself but it feels very clinical it is a very clinical journal and quite a few of my my team are still practicing doctors so you know we have that input from them and we're very much in touch with our through our advisors through our peer reviewers our authors through our readers we we feel like we're part of the medical community not only in the UK but around the world and that's a very enlivening experience so I, I do think medicine is you know it is a vocation for me and and uh, I, I don't feel as I've abandoned that. Medicine in and of itself can be quite a slow changing beast um, but when you look at the BMJ you always seem to be at the very forefront of science. I'd be quite interested to know how how you feel the average doctor can still practice at the forefront of science given that your work environment doesn't always cater to that. So I think the disparity I often see the most is um, at UCL, we're linked to a lot of national centres. So it's often the case that anything that I read about will be very quickly practised, well, soon enough, I suppose, in the relative scale of things, um, at these national centres. But then you can go to DGH and you can find that the, the same things that, these specialist centres have been doing for five, ten years, haven't been translated to specialist practice over there. I think it's very tough to to, to get innovation uh, disseminated and, and implemented uh, rapidly. But I would say that medicine is naturally conservative, and, and to some extent I think that is a good thing. Medicine and science does need to you know, take proper stock and, and, and apply a good dose of scepticism to new developments. I think we at the BMJ have a, a pretty big um, thread of scepticism in our makeup and I've inherited that from my predecessors and I think the current journal team our tendency is is to think that new developments have to prove themselves and have to be properly tested and we have to be ready to um, uh, you know recognize where medicine has gone wrong and it does go wrong it does make wrong um, wrong um, changes and the sense that change is always good and innovation is always good. Well, I think we just do need to question that, that often the older thing or the, you know, it's not always true that a new pill is better than the old pill or that any pill is better than no pill. Um, and and I think that's a, a trend in medicine that we need to question. Um, but when one has got a, an intervention that's been thoroughly evaluated and is thought to be an improvement, then I agree with you. It is a challenge for uh, less well-resourced or less well um, informed parts of the medical um, community to take those things on. And sometimes those innovations require expertise that doesn't exist or they require you know, additional staffing or they require additional training. And, and, and that's, you know, that can be very tough. So how to improve on that? Well, I think you know, we've got the National Institute for Clinical Excellence that has a, a guideline function. Um, that's obviously one route to, to let the wider community know, and the BMJ does summaries of those guidelines, not always without questioning what the guideline has come up with. Sometimes we need to say we don't agree with the guideline. Then there are obviously journal articles, not only the BMJ but elsewhere, which hopefully can inform people about you know what they should do to change their practice. And there's the Cochrane Library. There's good systematic reviews uh, being produced. But I think I think probably. Um, an important part of this is going to be peer support and ideally doctors who are practicing in specialty areas in a more in a less resource setting 
want to be plugged in to their colleagues in the more resourced areas. And I, one would hope that there was that kind of peer support through the Royal Colleges, through specialty associations, so that that, that um, route for sharing new developments is, is you know, really well resourced and, and, and well used. But I think it is, a, it is still a problem, obviously. People hang on to the things they know, the things they're familiar with, um, and... Uh, because change can be very difficult. Just to go back to something you said earlier about um, how being conservative can be helpful sometimes. We've seen over the last perhaps 30 to 50 years, the rate of change in technology and science seems to be changing quite exponentially. And so the difference between waiting, say, five years um, back in the 80s is very different to waiting five years now in terms of the changes in technologies and developments. So if you look at just science more generally, beyond the scope of medicine itself and the technologies that come out, uh, virtual reality, um, perhaps is a good example, um, the use of big data, and I mean, that's a really kind of topical thing in medicine at the moment. Looking at different ways, is there a need to look at different ways to evaluate evidence to try and reduce that time gap so that we can um, implement mm. new technologies faster, given the the large impacts they can have on health, should they be successful? Mm. I may not be the right person to talk about you know, the, the, the technological advances, um, but I, I would agree with you that healthcare in some ways is... You know, it feels it feels quite last century, if you like. There were still we're still a lot of the kind of um, buildings in which healthcare takes place. Certainly in the UK, a lot of the um, models of interaction that we use are are very traditional. People being asked to come up to outpatient clinics and you know wait for half an hour to see someone face to face, having travelled. You know, all all the sort of inconvenience of just turning up to an outpatient appointment and then you know just being told everything's fine uh, you know the the, the the need the need for modernizing the way in which we have those interactions between doctors and patients how information is shared how patients you know why aren't they in control of their own medical record um, why haven't we got better ways of uh, as you say pulling together the masses of data that we have anonymized data to actually look at shifts in the way medicine and healthcare are going so I think there's a there is a a lag in terms of modernization of the the technology that underpins health and healthcare research i would the, the the skepticism and the caution i would want to apply to this is um that although there have been and we have to celebrate amazing innovation and and invention around you know new drug treatments for certain types of conditions the, the rheumatoid um, arthritis cancer those sorts of things genome g- gene editing those sort of things that have really beginning to transform individual lives through much more personalized approaches to to treatments i still think it's very important that we um retain caution and although people want speed they want the new drugs available um i think we sh- we have to say that these that new interventions need to be properly evaluated. That we can't just allow, as seems to be happening, these rapid approval processes through the US FDA, through the European Medicines Agency, where this kind of what I would call spurious urgency to get the drug out there, despite the fact that actually the evidence for its for its um, being better than the existing drug, um, and the lack of evidence on harms that it might um, carry with it. You know, I think I think those are things we should absolutely hang on to and say we've got to evaluate these interventions properly. So if we can find quicker ways to do that in a reliable way, that would be an enormous improvement. Uh, I think at the moment, um, actually, the number of new drugs coming through is quite small, um, and we need to innovate for new drugs, but we also need, as I think you're saying, to innovate new ways to evaluate those quickly and well. But we shouldn't skimp on that evaluation. We can't allow, I think, um, impatience to mean that we get a lot of drugs on the market that haven't been properly evaluated and the same goes true is true for devices and surgical interventions so from what you just said it sounds like you think that sometimes we do tend to skimp on uh, making sure we've done the proper research on perhaps the well there's there's a lot of um recent uh push from the pharmaceutical industry and it's happening in america and also in europe i think uh, um coming through to uh 
you know, shame us into saying, shame us, by which I mean the medical community um, and, and the regulatory system, you know, why is it taking so long for these new marvellous wonder drugs to come through and to be approved in practice? Um, and I think you can look at it. In fact, there's evidence to say you can look at those rapid approvals and find that they're more likely to, to generate drugs which are then withdrawn in future. And that those withdrawals happen at the cost of patients who have had bad effects or have lacked haven't been given a beneficial drug because they've been given this new drug that wasn't properly tested. Do you see what I mean? It, that there is cost to patients, there's cost to society from getting it wrong. So I think that we do we do need to modernise how we evaluate new treatments, new drugs, new devices, but we need to apply proper scrutiny while doing that. And one of the ways I think we could do much better is to incorporate research and evaluation into everyday practice and do much more of, of, of continuous uh, randomization within clinical practice where there is real uncertainty about whether a drug or a device is, is an improvement on what already exists. Uh, we don't have systems for doing that. And certainly in the UK, where we have a national health system, and I think you have a, a patient body who are quite well informed and could be better informed about science and about the need to evaluate new treatments, I think we could do a much better job of of um, expanding the research enterprise within routine practice. It's quite interesting because um, I know that with my colleagues in medical school, we never really hear the other side of this argument, um, that there are kind of failed drugs that have negative impacts. I mean, I suppose thinking back, you can like the, the most obvious example that comes to my mind would be things like, um, I know implants are metal or metal stuff that happened a good while ago. But um, it sounds like far more recently there's a lot of stuff going on perhaps behind the scenes from how we're looking at it um that we perhaps need to be informed about there's a book by Vinay Prasad um which I think the headline sort of figure is 40 percent of, of what we do is wrong and um we we discover uh as, as medical med, medicine historically and um you know we often find that there's been a wrong turning but we do it rather late and it would be much better if we could find that out earlier on. So post-marketing surveillance, for example, so after drug has been approved, often with quite limited randomised control evidence, usually funded by the pharmaceutical industry. In fact, of all the, the drugs that were approved in, I think, the last year or two, all of the evidence that was put to the regulator about those new drugs came from the pharmaceutical industry, the manufacturers. So there's no independent randomised trial evidence being put to bear in the approval process. Um, and then post-marketing surveillance, which is really intended in the longer run to look at the drug in real life practice, um, is very problematic and, and poorly resourced. And so drugs are often approved on limited evidence. And this is certainly true of cancer drugs, um, but a, a wide range of drugs. And then the post-marketing surveillance doesn't really help us to understand, you know, the long term benefits, but also the, the harms. So um, although I'm a just like anyone delighted when I one of my family benefit from a, from an effective treatment and there are, there are many effective treatments out there uh, we there are also drugs that are approved on on limited evidence and and, and have to be withdrawn at a later date um, and devices too so you've mentioned um, the metal on metal hip which is a, a, a scandal a huge scandal uh, people's lives ruined and um, a, a great deal of information that could have been known earlier if we'd had proper ongoing evaluation and the other one is vaginal mesh, which is um, brewing at the moment a, a terrible um, episode where women have been, um, you know, very badly damaged um, in ways that is not retrievable uh, or reparable. And um, that, again, is an area where, with really limited evidence, mesh was inserted um, and um, evaluation wasn't adequate. And so it continued to be done much beyond... Uh, when evidence was emerging that there were problems, so it's that it's that responsiveness to signals that we need to get better at. I suppose this kind of nicely leads us onto the the topic of kind of challenging the norms, um, and I think that um, challenging popular view is something that it's from what I've seen in the BMJ you tend to do quite regularly. Um, I'd be quite interested to know. Um, whether that is a difficult thing to do in the context of a journal or is that perhaps more of an, an easier environment to challenge established norms in and then perhaps later we could talk more about um, personally challenging authority itself because um, I think that's 
something that people perhaps more face practically on a day-to-day basis. But with regards to your organisation to begin with, what is the experience of challenging some strongly held beliefs and... Well, I think it can be very hard, but the, 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 what makes it not easy, but what makes it easier for someone in my position is that that's the job, really. I mean, I, I think that's the distinction between someone trying to challenge practice within an organisation where they may not be in a position of authority or where, even if they are in a position of authority, there are lots of vested interests around them that make life difficult. In academia, for example, I think some academics find themselves... Pushed, pushed out or, or, or sidelined if they if they are challenging um, well well established norms, but to some extent it's the job of a, a journal like the BMJ to do that. And um, I've generally found that, that that the response has been encouraging and and you know supportive. Um, obviously, the people whose norms one is challenging are less thrilled by that, but that that's to be expected. So I think the important thing is to is to um, do the do one's homework and make sure that the people who are doing the challenging are um, not themselves heavily conflicted and that they've made a good case and that it's been properly peer reviewed and um, you know we we sometimes get things wrong ourselves we need to be ready to acknowledge that and correct things where we get them yeah. wrong and um, I think that uh, you know some of the things that we have f- tackled um, or found ourselves questioning the status quo have brought us up against resistance and I mean I'm thinking climate change was the BMJ was early to talk about climate change as a public health issue and we were very strongly told by a number of readers and people in, in authority that this wasn't the job of a medical journal and climate change was a myth and you know why did we think it was our job to talk in this way and so that was one part of the challenge. Then the second part of the challenge came a bit later, which was, you know, what's the BMJ doing itself, you know, sending out all these print copies and plastic wrappers. And so then, you know, the, the challenge to actually do something ourselves, which we're working on but haven't quite sorted out yet, we're continuing to look at our own environmental impact. And and that's been a lesson in a number of the things we've done where where we want to challenge or advocate for a new way of doing things. And we've been quicker, I think, on some of the issues to think we've got to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. So... Uh, patient involvement in research, patient involvement in the design of healthcare and in the education of doctors. These are things that BMJ has been advocating for a few years, but we made sure that when we began to think in these terms that we quickly looked at our own processes and established a patient panel, patient peer reviewers, patient co-authors, um, uh, patient editors, so that we could say we're not just telling other people to do it, we're doing it ourselves. And So, so on the, some of the issues, that makes sense. On issues like the Too Much Medicine campaign, um, which is, you know, a broad campaign for the BMJ to try to pull back medical overuse, um, overtreatment, overdiagnosis. That's been um, welcomed by many people because it goes against, it's kind of counterintuitive and, and it seems to be there's a general push to, that more is better and, and we've wanted to question that and have a lot of very well worked out examples which show that in many cases, more is not better. Um, but, you know, one has to be careful because in some cases, you know, new treatments are a good thing and we don't want to be just sceptical for the for the sake of it. Um, so getting that balance right can be hard and we don't always get that right. You've brought up a few things there that I kind of want to explore further. Um, I think the climate change um, topic is a, a really good one because I know you have quite a strong personal interest in, in this as well. Why should... For, Anyone listening, why should doctors take a professional interest in climate change beyond just a personal one? Well, for a host of reasons, I think, you know, we, we, we're now, um, I think there's general acceptance, although there will be people who will deny this, that climate change is real, that it's largely a result of human activity, that it's, it's, it's threatening the future of the human, human species, uh, that we've got a very short time in which to prevent, um, global warming from exceeding 1.5 degrees which is the kind of one of the tipping points people talk about for uncontrollable uh, environmental catastrophe so you know that's a big deal isn't it and uh, so in terms of true threats to public health by which we mean human survival uh, and also human well-being uh, climate change is hard to beat I think you know in in, in local areas you've got conflict and famine um, but those two are being driven increasingly we, we understand by climate change as well so war conflict um food shortage land shortage water shortage all of those things are going to be made worse by climate change and those are all threats to health 
Um, and then at a more kind of disease-specific level, we've got changing disease patterns, which are going to change malaria's distribution, amongst others, um, Ebola, um, all of those kind of emerging infections, which which are, are real global concerns. Um, so that's so it, it is a huge public health concern. Doctors, therefore, should be interested. But there's also this idea that doctors are people of influence, people who are respected for their professional expertise and for their role as a sort of, in my view, advocates for social justice. And a lot of the climate change issues also impact on um, the inequities in the world between rich and poor countries and, and, and regions of the world, um, high-consuming areas such as you know the West versus people who, who still have very little resource. So that's a role that medical professions as a whole need to, I think, speak up about. And then there's their role in their local communities, which is them as leaders of opinion. Um, and um, so I think in terms of our own behaviour, it, it matters that doctors try to be environmentally aware and that they show their patients that they're environmentally aware and that they work in health systems that acknowledge that health health healthcare itself is an enormous contributor to our carbon um emissions uh, we have seen doctors really speaking up about this with with impressive impact i think and we've now got the health professionals alliance on climate change which was co-founded by the bmj and the lancet and the royal colleges and the bma so we've got the major medical bodies in the uk all coming together um to try to speak with one voice on this issue um and we've done stuff on air pollution we're doing stuff on active transport we're doing stuff on greening the healthcare system and I think that we are seeing now that no one questions this which is a big shift from when the BMJ first started talking about it nobody is writing to me now saying why is the BMJ doing this so um, you know the mainstream has shifted and that that has to be a good thing but we but it is urgent and and I think you know if I wasn't in this role and maybe when I'm no longer in this role you know I would be I, I would like to think I would be on the streets with Extinction Rebellion, you know, really standing up for this. Moving across slightly now, um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the current situation for doctors' well-being. So when myself and Ankit decided to put this podcast together, a big um, driver for this was um, not being sure whether we wanted to be the doctors we see in front of us on the wards. And... A big reason for that is that a lot of them are unhappy with their their lifestyle, their well-being, their, their working environment. I'd be quite interested to know what you tend to hear about most and what you feel the main challenges are to doctors' well-being in the workplace mm. at the moment. I think it's a huge concern, and the BMJ has uh, one of its campaigns is about doctors' well-being. Um, and my colleagues, Kat Chatfield and Abby Rimmer, are leading on that. And... I think it's been brewing for a while. I think there are many different factors that have led to it, and I think it's equally hard for juniors as for and for, and for seniors. I think we often talk about junior doctors, rightly so, but I, I'm aware also that that um, we we know that GPs and and hospital consultants are, are also finding life very um, tough. Uh, which isn't to say there aren't doctors around in the UK and around the world who are having a you know really inspiring, wonderful time. So we, you know we we mustn't be too bleak. But I, I do think the position is largely bleak, and the issues that I think are playing into that are historically the working time directive led to shift systems, which led to um, the loss of the the traditional firm structure. And it's easy for people in my position to kind of romanticize back about what the firm structure meant but it did mean that when I was a junior doctor a registrar in general medicine I had um, a, a consultant who knew who I was I knew who he was um, I had a, a, a senior registrar likewise who I could turn to I had some juniors who were with me for six months um, who I could get to know um, and so there was there was and you know on, a, on a, an acute medical take we would go this is always talked about. If it, it, it did happen, there was a curry house across the road. We would bring in curry and we would sit in the doctor's mess, which existed. Um, I mean, this was in the nineteen late nineteen eighties, uh, yeah, late nineteen eighties, and that was a very important thing. And, and the doctor's mess was part of it. It meant that you could unwind, you could go and think, "My goodness, I've just made a real mistake. What shall I do?" Uh, with someone who wouldn't judge you too much and would give you a bit of support. 
Um, so all of that seems to have gone. And my understanding is that often juniors don't know really who their boss is. The boss doesn't know who their juniors are. There isn't a doctor's mess where they can unwind. They haven't got good HR. NHS is not a good employer. They haven't got clear rotors or the rotors are told to them very last minute. They're not able to, to manage their private lives, their families. They might be posted to places that are far away from their spouse. All of these things are, are really poor people management. And they're exacerbated by the fact that, that we haven't got enough doctors, uh, for the, for the workload at the moment, I, I think. And, um, locums, good though they may be as individuals, are working very much just on a sort of turning up and going away kind of approach. So it's not just a question of more money, but I think we do need more money. We need more doctors. We need, um, but above all, I think we need much, much better employment, you know, but much better employers. And I think it's really shocking that people have given their lives to training as doctors and have worked hard for that and have expertise are being treated in this way. So we feel very strongly about it at the BMJ. And, and I, I think it's very upsetting to think that someone like you, Raj, who, you know, you've trained and you're clearly enthused and you're, you know, inspired by medicine, you're clearly vocational about it. Uh, you know, I worry that you'll go into your junior dogs, junior hospital doctor jobs and um, be downtrodden. And that should not be how it is. So how do we go about addressing this? What what are the main action points that perhaps BMJ are doing that are being done more broadly and that perhaps students and young doctors can do to try and alter their work environment themselves? So um, one of the... What may seem a small thing is we are, we've got a campaign to bring back the mess. Um, it's called, um, hashtag take a break. It's to do with proper rest time and proper rest facilities. Uh, we're, we're sort of highlighting hospitals where this has been done to show that it, it can be done. It does make a difference. Um, we are looking at, you know, other ways in which the NHS as an employer and specifically employer of doctors can improve things. Uh, we're aware that the BMA is working um, hard on this too and wanting to kind of find synergies with, with the BMA's efforts to improve things for doctors. Um, the uh, hospital consultants, um, you know, we're looking at a consultant-driven care system now, which is a good thing for patients, but it puts a whole load of additional burden on consultants who often are now in their 50s and might have, in a previous uh, uh, system, have thought, well, now I no longer need to be sort of turning up at midnight and staying through till five o'clock in the morning uh, because I've got a highly trained junior staff and well-resourced junior staff to do this, and that, that may no longer be the case. Um, we are, you know, I think we have to advocate for more resource. We have to make the case to the, um, through the colleges is, is a good route for individual specialty areas where more resource is needed. And I think, you know, talking just simply about more resilience amongst the individual doctors is, is not entirely the, the, the answer because uh, it implies a kind of fault amongst the individual doctors. And I think what we're seeing is this is a system problem and um, and that individuals are finding themselves really struggling and um you know we know that there's a high suicide rate amongst doctors there's people leaving the profession both early on through their foundation years but also retiring early and that's compounding the problem of of the lack of experienced medical professionals so i think you know there's a lot of different things that need to be done but we are right to shout about it. And, and I think that you um, and your colleagues going into medicine now should feel that, that things aren't, aren't right and it's not your fault. Um, and you need to feel that you could raise those issues um, both with your senior colleagues, but also with your royal colleges and also with the BMA. Yeah, I, I think it can be quite difficult, especially a big thing that I found is certainly my colleagues who didn't go into medicine, perhaps were with me at university, and I've gone into um, the workforce more generally. Uh, the work environment itself, um, perhaps high-flying city jobs aside, tends to be so different. The, um, the kind of, you hear about these companies with a strong sense of company culture, trying to bring everyone together. You just don't seem to have any of that in the NHS. It's very much, this is what's expected of you. Um, provide the service, mm. and and if you're struggling, then, you know, that's, that's on you to find the resources available. Um, and there's stuff that you hear about, like mindfulness and things that seem fantastic, like really, really useful. 
I'm a great supporter of mindfulness. I think it's an excellent thing and people should do it. And I myself um, have a meditation practice, which I find incredibly valuable. But to say that that is the answer to a, a massive systemic problem and a cultural problem within the NHS and to put, as you say, the responsibility on the individual in that way is, I think, wrong. Um, and the same is true for sort of resilience training and those sort of things, all of which are good, but they're not the answer. Uh, I think what what is the answer is more doctors, more task shifting to other professionals, um, better employment practices, learning to value the expertise of doctors as they come into the profession and nurture them and keep them and, and train them up and make them feel like they're um, you know considered to be uh, of value. If you join the armed forces, there is obviously I'm sure it's a very challenging career path to join but uh, talking to uh, people in the armed forces there is a proper career structure there is a proper employment um, and and um, that, that team feeling and I think that that's something that certain parts of the NHS large parts of the NHS have lost I'm sure there are people who who would be listening to this or out there who are involved in teams where things run beautifully and where they feel terribly engaged and that that's fantastic and part of our job at the BMJ is to identify those groups and to um, highlight them so people can see that it is possible to run a really good team and have a really inspired workforce, a really engaged workforce. But I would say they're in the minority at the moment, which is a, which is a great shame and a, and a real loss to the country and to, to, um, to our society. Um, well said. Something else I wanted to chat to you a little bit about is research work more generally. Uh, and this might be a bit of an oversight on my part, perhaps, I'm not sure, but I've, I've always found it really interesting that as you, um, so I'm entering the workforce now, and um, you start to think about career progression and how you want to go forward. And it's interesting that no matter which way you want to go, research is always such a huge part of your personal development. It's really important to make sure that you're engaged in research and that you're showing an active interest in it. I can totally see the importance of being up to date with medical practice and up to date with what's going on. But I've always wondered why all doctors are required to partake in research and not just those who excel in it. So I agree with you um, about this. And my predecessor, Richard Smith, was of the view that teachers, for example, aren't expected to be involved in educational research. Um, they're they're um, they, they're applying that research, and, and doctors too are in the applied side of medical practice. You can see the logic that doctors need to understand research, and so I suppose the next bit of logic is let's get them to do it. And also, when people are looking for consultant jobs, it's it's likely to be more in your favour if you have done some research. That might be true. So, the competitive side of it and doctors are naturally competitive otherwise they wouldn't have gotten to medical school might think well I've got to do this because I've got to you know make sure I've, I'm going to be in with a good chance when it comes to my consultant job but the risk of it is that um, people in order to get over this hurdle do poor research and there is a lot of poor research around if it's not properly resourced if it's not properly supervised if it doesn't ask a decent research question you know if it's only they're only in a job for six months they don't have time to do a proper job of the piece so you know, doing bad research is 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 no one is in, does no one any good. So I'm of your mind on this that um, clearly, if you've got an appetite and a yearning to do research, then one wants to make sure you've got proper mentorship and you're channeled into that, and you could do you know half clinical, half research. But I think it, I think it has been a, a wrong direction of travel that people um, feel they've got to. I mean, that, that, that is now currently part of their the requirement for their training, and I think that is a bad, bad um, initiative. And you've reminded me it's something that we do want to write about the BMJ because it, it links into the whole idea of how you evaluate people, what how you how you um, put value on their work. And one of the things that tends to be undervalued is education, is doctors who take an interest in the education of their colleagues, and um, that's an essential. F- function within um, medical development and yet I don't think those people get properly encouraged or um, rewarded. That's a really interesting point actually. Um, I, I'm just thinking about the placement that I'm on at the moment um, and there's 
a huge difference in the kind of teaching you can get. I, I'm particularly thinking in this case about consultants in the ways they go about the ward round and whether it's a much more kind of business ward round where they get all get everything done um, and by 11 o'clock you're sorted. Or I've had other consultants who every single patient they will use as a teaching point and go to great lengths to make sure that um, myself and my colleagues fully understand the topic and then we'll finish at two o'clock. And it, I've kind of concluded it can, it can only be out of their own interest and goodwill because they're putting themselves at a huge disadvantage. They're three hours behind on the workload. Um, and yet they've definitely done a good thing that's good, not only for me, but I suppose for the system generally. So I think that's definitely definitely a good topic to explore for sure. Yeah, so I mean I think what what's good about medicine is that it's a it's a it's a career that opens up all sorts of different directions of travel. You know, you can go into a different a range of different specialties, you know, from acute surgery to pathology and radiology and all those different ways of being general practice. Um but likewise one ideally could combine whatever that specialty is with a number of different sort of um vertical if you like um expertises one of which is management increasingly people learning to be leaders within medicine essential that we have those people who are willing to take on those um leadership health system change kind of roles uh and then you've got the educators who i think we've said don't get enough credit for what they do and then you've got the researchers and you've got the quality improvers so um those are just a few and, and obviously in my line you've got editors writers um which I think is equally important in terms of the dissemination of knowledge and, and sharing of things. So uh, ideally, all of those would, would would be encouraged. And as you're saying, Raj, and I would agree, to, to, to preferentially require people to do research without the adequate resource and without that being the thing they want to do seems to be a mistake. Okay, we'll move across, I suppose, more to your personal story a little bit now if, if that's all right I think a lot of people listening would will undoubtedly regard you and your life for, as a huge success at least from what we can see um from the outside and I think you, <laughs> <laughs> the inner story is a whole different man <laughs> um and there are a few a few things I'd be really interested to hear about your journey from someone in a position similar to myself to where you are now I think I'll start by going back to a question I think we inadvertently skipped over, which was challenging authority and any personal any personal context you have of that and what your advice might be to people going about trying to do something similar. Yeah, so, um, the, so the BMJ challenging authority and status quo is part of its job, so I, I don't consider that um, you know, personally brave, although people do say that, but it's, it's actually what, we, what we're here to do. Um, one of the challenges I've faced, which comes with the job as well, but is, is does feel more personally confronting at times, is is that it's very important that the BMJ maintains its editorial independence. And by that, we mean that, that I, as editor-in-chief, um, am granted editorial independence by the BMA, our owner. Um, and that means that the content of the journal, including the advertising and all of the editorial content, is my responsibility and obviously they can sack me if they don't like the way I'm taking the journal, the direction I'm taking it over a period of time, but they, they can't interfere with individual, you know, decisions. Um, and, and they don't, um, although they do sometimes make, you know, if, if members complain or if they are unhappy, they'll obviously make me aware of that, but that's fine. And I just carry on doing what I think is right for the journal. Uh, but more difficult has been sometimes within the publishing group, um, where the BMJ, for example, where we have criticised the pharmaceutical industry, which is, you know, a big part of what we write about, um, for, for wrongdoing or for, for, you know, wrong marketing or for influence in doctors' education or all of those things that we're concerned about, commercial influence on medicine. Uh, and the BMJ as a publishing group takes advertising from the pharmaceutical industry and also sponsorship in some cases. Um, and then our sales team struggles sometimes because companies are not pleased and withdraw advertising and the commercial side of the journal is you know less good than it might be um so that's been quite difficult because it's been within my colleague ship if you like so it's it's feel very close to home and and i have to have com conversations um with my chief executive and with our sales team um to sort of you know just completely 
continue with this idea that editorial independence is sacrosanct and we think we're doing the right thing for the journal and for the readership. Um, and if that means that the pharmaceutical industry is not happy with us, that's part of the, that's just part of the deal. I'm very lucky in my colleagues in that respect at the moment, but in the past there have been issues where I've had to make a stand and that has felt very uncomfortable. And I felt, you know, it can be quite a lonely position to, to be in. And I do think that doctors are often faced with very, very difficult decisions. Their careers are at stake. They've got senior people who may be, um, you know, doing things that they don't think are right. Who should they turn to? And if they don't get the support they need from uh, their their peer group or from the managers of the hospital or from their medical director, it can be extremely hard for them. And I and I think that's something that that is is a, is a again something that we need to highlight and and try and provide better better routes for. No, I, I entirely agree. Um, okay, moving um, my next question. These are a couple of quickfire questions now uh, that I've kind of been asking most people. Um, one in particular uh, that I think everyone always seems to have quite an unusual answer to um, would be what you'd say your favourite failure was. Now, in what I mean by that is an example of something that perhaps at the time went wrong and you thought was perhaps even a disaster. But looking back now, you're quite grateful for perhaps the perspective it gave you or the opportunities it's given you. Okay, well, uh, one to mention is is the statin saga. I don't know if any of your listeners will, will know about that. We published an article um, looking at the... Um, crit- crit- critiquing the idea that um, pretty much all people over the age of 50 should be on a statin. Uh, and this was based on a piece in The Lancet, a meta-analysis in The Lancet, which then led to uh, a change in the Cochrane Review, which led to a change in NICE guidance. Um, And the original meta-analysis on which it was based was critiqued in this article in the BMJ. And in addition to critiquing whether the statin um, evidence showed benefit in this wide group of patients, people at low risk of heart disease, this article also made claims about the adverse effects of statins that we felt were under-reported. And... The first, uh, in terms of the kind of error, uh, the people who had written the original meta-analysis in the Lancet from Oxford uh, came down very heavily on us saying, you know, you've made a big mistake. The um, the, uh, the quote of the um, rate of harms from statins is, is wrong. You overestimated it. It's a complete disaster. It's going to ruin, you know, it's going to kill people and you've made a huge error. Um, so this went on for some time while we tried to sort out had, had there been a mistake, how to correct the mistake, the, we, which we did. It wasn't vast correction. It just reduced the harms estimate um, a bit. And the Oxford team weren't happy, uh, felt that we should retract the paper, were very upset by the idea that this paper was critiquing the idea that statins could be beneficial in this wide group of healthy people. Um, and what then emerged out of that was what I think has been an enormously interesting debate where the people who are pro-statins in people at low risk, healthy people, everyone should be taking a statin in their view, were um, wanting there to be no debate about this. They're saying that we shouldn't discuss this. It's putting people's lives at risk. Um, everyone's stopping their statins when they shouldn't be and people are going to die as a result. Um, and the other side of this, which is the side I felt we were on, was say that there is a really interesting debate to be had here about whether this widespread use of statins in people who are otherwise healthy is a good idea, whether the harms have been adequately evaluated. So there was a kind of too much medicine angle here, which fitted with our ethos, and that caused the Oxford team's people to say, you know, you're biased, you're an anti-medicine people, you don't believe in treatments generally. But there was a medical overuse story uh, we, we felt that needed to be explored and there was also a transparency story which was about where are the data turns out that the data on the statins that had been the, the basis for this meta-analysis in the lancet and a whole load of meta-analyses published elsewhere are held only by the trialists many of whom are funded by the pharmaceutical industry and they themselves have agreed to share their data for all these various trials but not to share those data with anyone outside their group so it's like a sort of um, enclosed garden in which they can see the stuff but nobody else can and this to me and to others seems completely wrong this is a, a public health intervention that of, of huge significance large numbers of people being encouraged to take these drugs GP's time being taken up with you know 
reviewing people and treating them and um, and the cost, even though statins are now very cheap, still there's cost to the health system and and potential harm that hasn't been properly evaluated. And so we have, from, from this one error, which we've corrected, has come this twofold thing about medical overuse and lack of transparency in this very key area. So it's fueled an enormous number of interesting discussions and um, we are currently in the process of supporting the people who are seeking the data on statins from the various regulators around the world and we've got an open data campaign on bmj.com uh, where we're, we're um, uh, re- recording if you like all of the different requests that are being made uh, to, to obtain this data and we're hoping there may well be a request from the government for an independent review of the statins data which I think would be an enormously important um, shift. So it was a bit of an error but it has fueled a really fascinating and important debate. What was the atmosphere like in the office when you first got that call in saying that you might have made an error? What was the well? Was it, it was it was fine, really. I mean, our first response to the to, to the to complainant from Oxford, Rory Collins, um, was to say, "Right, send us a letter. Send us, you know, tell us what we've done wrong." Our normal approach in the BMJ is is to to publish, you know, get that out there. But he he didn't do that. He continued to write me emails mm. privately, saying not for publication. Um, which was a kind of, in my mind, a form of bullying because it was sort of behind the radar. You know, it didn't it didn't actually help us progress the debate. And eventually, he well, so so I continued to say, look, this needs to be discussed openly. Please send us a letter of publication. Uh, then I can share that with the authors, and the authors can make make the change if necessary. Um, that went on for some months, um, and then uh, Rory Collins went to the media and uh, told The Guardian that there was this big thing and it went onto the Radio 4 and um, Rory Collins and I had debates on Radio 4 Today programme. In my view, without a question, if there was a statin scare that followed that, it was because they went. he went to the media. We, did, we didn't do that. We didn't press release the original paper. We were then subsequently blamed for uh, causing a scare about statins. I, I absolutely refute that. And um, there must have been huge pressure on you during that period, especially when you'd gone to the media. It, it, it was there was pressure, and um, and you know we, what I found very helpful was 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 that we have systems, we have we have approaches to this kind of thing, and I've continued to follow that approach, which is let's get something out in the public domain, in terms of within the medical medical community from them saying what's wrong. The authors could then correct it. They repeatedly refused to publish or anything on it. And um, eventually, when the call to retract the paper came, having we had we did the correction, um, they said that we still wanted to retract the paper. I decided that I couldn't, because I was already invested in this to the, to a large extent. I couldn't be the right person to make that decision because I think I didn't think it should be retracted. Mm. So, um, in a, in a, in, a, in a new initiative for me, so I hadn't ever done this before, and I don't know that other journals have done it to the same extent. I passed that over to an independent panel I asked our, the, the chair of the former chair of our ethics committee Iona Heath to to convene a panel of experts which included statisticians and a patient and um, very very experienced researchers there were six of them uh, from around the world including an editor of another journal and they they we gave them everything and we we left them to it and they came up with their view which was that the paper didn't need retracting um, and they were very uh, I mean there, there was some criticisms of the BMJ which we took on board about some of our processes, but they were also critical of the Oxford Group for failing to um, engage with the journal and for failing to make the data available. So they made a very clear call for the data to be made available. That was back in 2000 and I'm going to say 12, 13. So we're now five, six years on from then and the data, you know, still (laughs) are not available. Um, And, uh, you know, further work is constantly being published from this group one of the specific issues that I've asked for is that the harms data, the data on harms of statins in this low risk group have not been um, have not been evaluated to the same extent as the benefits. So what's happened is they've evaluated the evidence on the benefits, published that in a number of different ways, but they haven't done the same scrutiny of the evidence on harms. Uh, and they promised they would do that. There's a protocol that exists to show they're doing it, but the, that data has not yet been published. So. You know, it's a, it's a great exercise. It's a, it's a bit, it's been a really interesting experience and I've learned a lot in the process. I'm not saying we didn't do things wrong. We did. But I think what we have done is be 
entirely transparent. I mean, if anyone wants to go on to the BMJ and put BMJ, I think it's bmj.com forward slash statins, you'll see uh, this whole thing laid out there in as transparent a way as possible. And what have been your main takeaways from this? Well, um, I think that I hadn't understood the extent to which this is controversial at the time when we published the first article. I don't, I don't think that was necessarily a big problem. Uh, obviously, one always looks back and thinks we, we might have peer-reviewed that more. It did go through peer review. Um, you know, were there errors in our editorial processing of the article? A few, and we've looked back at that and, and made some changes. So, so you know, the edit journals make mistakes. I think we, 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 uh, we corrected the mistake if that was there but I think I have been very strengthened in recognizing bullying when it's happening and bullying of uh, which is which is an effort to isolate you as an individual and um, make you feel like you've done something shameful and and that was something that I I um, found initially troubling and then reverting to the way we normally do things which is to to try and throw this out into the public and say into the into the you know, or, uh, publishing stuff in the journal about it rather than doing it behind closed doors, and that that I think reaffirmed my view that that's the best way to handle such things. And um, I think I've also learnt about the difference between experts who know their own field in de- in detail and generalists who are the general practitioners, for example, who are going to have to implement, for example, a massive increase in the medicalisation of the general population, and how that wasn't taken into account at any stage in the review of the evidence so when NICE made its new guidance there wasn't any as far as I could can remember account taken of the idea that suddenly you're going to be pulling in um, a whole load more people and checking their cholesterols and putting them on statins and that the healthcare resourcing system doesn't it wasn't taken into account so the, the wider picture of what we're doing here has been fascinating to be exposed to and then the sheer ridiculousness of um, the current situation where very, very commonly used drugs uh, are, are evaluated in such a way that the manufacturer has a large influence in the outcome of the trials. And even where that isn't the case, the data are held by a few individuals and the public more widely has no access to them. So I think that we've got to see a change in availability of, of de-identified de- um, uh, detailed randomized controlled dial data and the randomized controlled trials of the future need to be done in such a way that the consent for the sharing of de-identified data is part of how patients take part in, in trials so that they're, they're being encouraged to share their data rather than that being a, 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 an apparent hindrance for sharing which is what the trialists are saying well, we, we didn't get permission that we can't share the data and, and that just seems completely wrong Fair enough um, no, I think that's a really interesting discussion, actually, that people can look into. Because I didn't know anything about statin stuff. That'll be really interesting. Um, just just to say that, that, the, that the formative experience that I'd had prior to the statin saga was around the Tamiflu. Um, and that was where the Cochrane collaboration sought the data for Tamiflu when they were being asked to update the Tamiflu being a, an antiviral for when, when the bird flu epidemic was coming through in 2008-9. And the government wanted to update the Tamiflu Cochrane review so that they could decide whether to stockpile Tamiflu ahead of this this bird flu epidemic. And it turned out that the data were all held by the drug company and the Cochrane collaboration came to the BMJ and said, could we help try and get the data? So we had a five-year uh, open data campaign around Tamiflu and eventually did manage to help get the data for the Cochrane review. And the Cochrane reviewers redid the review and found that Tamiflu, which had previously been said to be effective against um you're getting complications from influenza really there's very little evidence that that is the case and also harms that hadn't been reported so um that that to me was a hugely formative experience and again if people listening want to look at that there's a bmj.com forward slash tamiflu there's a whole saga um on, on the website about that i was wondering um so imagine you've had a few mentors going through this process and um doing this job I'd be really interested to know what the best and worst pieces of advice you think you've had have been through your time. Well, when I took on the job um, from my predecessor, Richard Smith, and his predecessor, Stephen Locke, uh, they both wrote to me. And um, Stephen Locke memorably said, 
Um, don't let the buggers get you down. I don't know who they are anymore, but they'll still be there. That was one of his bits of advice that I found very helpful. <laughs> Richard Smith has been a hugely um, inspirational mentor for me, and both when I was one of his junior editors and when I got the job as editor, he he has been impeccable, really, as my predecessor in not interfering. Uh, he promised he wouldn't interfere, but 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 whenever I've asked for his advice, he's been um, really quick to you know be there in support and very wise counsel. Um, so that's been fantastic. Um, I can't think immediately of, of bad advice I've had. Um, I'm sure uh, you know. I think my, what my experience is, is 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 I do ask, I do seek advice from people. I do. I think that's an incredibly important thing to do. And obviously, depending on the different situation, you can go to different people. And we're very lucky at the BMJ to have a wide group of advisors. And because I think people are, are supportive of the journal, they'll come, you know, they'll, they'll give their time to help us if we come up against difficulties. And so, you know, I, I am someone who seeks advice um, and my colleagues likewise we have a very supportive team um, so, so that, you know, if the problem arises, the very first thing I would do is call a group together and say, this is the issue, let's discuss that. And then, you know, we'll look externally to think who can give us expert advice. So um, it doesn't mean we follow it. We, we, we take on board views from a range of different places. And, but, but that's important. To perhaps do. before you got to the BMJ, I mean, I imagine that leaving medicine, or perhaps it didn't feel like leaving medicine per se, but um, getting involved with the BMJ to begin with, you... You clearly had um, a very prestigious background, having been to um, Cambridge for your postgrad um, and UCH. Well, I would say that for your undergrad. <laughs> um, I would say that too. Um, you then decided that you'd kind of move away from the kind of clinical medicine to do this editorial work. Were there was there ever ever any? Resistance from that from the people above you, or were they actually quite supportive? Well, my registrar rotation was a four-year rotation at the Whittington, so I got my membership with the Royal College of Physicians, and then was 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 doing my registrar rotation. And there was a year within those four years where you were required, I think, to go and take a do do something else. And it was intended, I think, people would do research. And um, rather, as we said earlier, I didn't feel drawn to doing clinical research. And um, when this job was suggested, it seemed to me. A, a really perfect fit and it was just for a year so I really there was no difficulty in terms of my training because the assumption was I'd do this and then go back into clinical medicine um, and I think there was a sense in which the BMJ was an academic environment which it is you know a lot of what we do is 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 highly academic and so that seemed to fit and and I think people were rather intrigued and so I didn't get any resistance of that sort when I'd asked to stay on a second year I think that was all right too but when I said I was going to stay on for good I got some people saying you know that because I don't think people understood quite what the BMJ did you know it's not it's not everyone's people don't you know understandably it's a totally different environment I think they they thought that was a strange choice and you know my mother said you know but what a shame you're not going to be a doctor anymore she didn't entirely think it was the right thing for me to do but later on she understood and was very supportive but so there was a little bit of pushback then. And and again, I think um, I did take advice at the time I was doing regist- uh, registrar in rheumatology, registrar in neurology, and a bit of gastroenterology, and I took advice from my consultants. And the risk of that is, of course, that they've already taken a choice to go into their own specialty area. So I, I was aware of the fact that they w- would naturally say, you know, rheumatology is great, neurology is great, gastro is great. And you have to sort of be a bit wary of that, that, that people, um, like I would say, being a medical editor is great. And uh, I think you have to take your own path, having taken the advice, take your own path. Um, and very quickly before we finish, since I have got you here, I'd be really interested to know what you think. If we, if we limit, limit it to three, the three biggest challenges and the three biggest opportunities you think um, health care is going to have over the next 10 to 20 years? Well, I think workforce is a huge challenge. Um, well, I know that to be not only in the UK, but, but globally. And, um, uh, you know, we think of countries in Europe having a better time than us, and we think of Brexit being a, a real challenge for us at the moment. But around around Europe, um, I know from a meeting we just held about this, it's a vast problem. And we're talking about skilled workforce, um, and we're talking about 
the, the workforce across the healthcare, healthcare system in general. So that mm-hmm. I don't know really what we're going to do about that aging population. Um, fewer people uh, wanting to go into medicine um, and less money around um, and, and all the global situation being difficult. So I think that's a vast challenge and mustn't underestimate that. We've mentioned climate change. I think that's a genuine, really massive public health threat. It's one of those ones that's so easy to just park because it doesn't seem like it's imminent, but it is imminent. And um, I'm, you know, I think we've we've got to put it into every single calculation we make about the future has got to be mentioned climate change and other challenges, opportunities. I do technology is an enormous opportunity, and we talked earlier about how healthcare perhaps is being a bit slow to take on new technologies and that's not so much necessarily devices but more about information technology and about how we redesign the interactions between doctors and patients and the way in which patients take charge of their own health. I think that's an enormous opportunity and one that you know we know that patients are there's this movement called we are not waiting which is where patients are taking things into their own hands they're they're running their own trials they're hacking their own data they're uh, hacking their own devices so they can actually run their diabetes or their Parkinson's. Um, and these are fascinating and really interesting initiatives that we've got to uh, embrace, I think. The patients need to be put in charge if they want to be, um, and doctors need to work with par- as partners with them rather than holding on to control. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's for- been a pleasure, Raj. Absolute pleasure. And um, I hope... I hope uh, yeah, I hope your readers, your listeners <laughs> will engage with this and I hope they'll become BMJ readers in the fullness of time. We, we, we need uh, intelligent, great, committed, wonderful people reading the journal and I'm sure many of them, all of them, are of that sort. I'm sure they will. Thank you very much. That is the end. I hope you found that conversation as useful as we did. It was great to have a chance to pick the mind of a woman at the head of such an influential journal And I particularly respect the value she placed on our roles in combating climate change. I think this is something that we don't frequently discuss in the medical setting, and I think it's increasingly important that we do. I hope you found this episode interesting. If you did, please leave us a review on iTunes or whatever platform you happen to be listening on. Find us on social media at The Curious Medic and on our website, thecuriousmedic.com, for more content. A quick shout out to Viveka Nagendran for the mellow music. And that's all from us. Produced by Ankit Butt and hosted by me, Raj Pradhan, this has been The Curious Medic. Have a great week.